Good evening. Um, as I said a moment ago when I was announcing we were going to start late, my fault is not, not speakers and not yours. Uh, my name is Tim Travers, uh, here from here at the LSE, and I'm your chair for this evening. Um, our distinguished guest, Harry Sankaran, is going to talk to us about financing sustainable urban development. And this is an issue, of course, which is of profound importance increasingly, not only here in Britain, but it is important here in Britain, but in all countries across the world. The social and financial sustainability of major capital investments in a world where both developed and developing and partly developing countries desperately need such capital and relatively rapidly, and where governments often can't uh, or do not any longer wish to raise the resources instantly in order to invest in those projects in the way they might have past, where a very large private uh, sector operating through what are popularly called, not that popularly, but to hear no doubt, uh, public-private partnerships, private finance arrangements of various kinds. But these new ways of allowing private players to develop, to develop what would previously often have been public sector infrastructure has become a major issue. Anybody who's spent much time in Britain will know it's a politically contentious one, but one that's been undertaken under governments both Conservative and Labour, but today we're going to get an international perspective on this issue, uh, particularly, of course, as the urban age, which is the grand title for this series of events, or these events take place within the urban age, is a longer-term theme series of conferences, seminars of this kind, generously funded by the Alfred Herrhausen Foundation, Deutsche Bank, and uh, the Urban Age's next big conference will be in Mumbai in November, and to this end, we are enormously uh, fortunate today to have an international expert who can talk about the development of privately funded capital projects needed by large cities, large companies, but also to look at some of the social and financial responsibility that uh, surrounds those projects. So Harry, perhaps I can invite you to speak, and Harry's kindly agreed at the end of this talk to take a few questions from the audience. Harry. Thank you and good evening. And uh, uh, I've prepared a presentation uh, which covers rather directly the question that was asked of me, which is how are we looking at urbanization in India and how are we financing it and what are the best practices that are emerging from our experiences in India. Uh, the best way I could answer these questions is actually to uh, run you through some of the projects that we've actually implemented in India, which will give you a good sense of how we are looking at this issue and the kind of difficult questions that we are having to deal with. And uh, I'm afraid to say, I'm not sure if we have a good answer to those questions or not, but we're certainly making an effort to get there. Uh, a little bit of the organization I work for, it's a rather unique organization in India, 
It was set up as a public-private partnership in its own right. It has government shareholding and it has private shareholding with one common purpose, that we want to establish frameworks which will enable um, communities, both urban or rural for that matter, to develop infrastructure services to the requisite standards where there's a willingness to pay for the service and where there is a commitment from the operator to maintain a standard of service. We see this as a critical part of India's own growth story, uh, which has explored over the last 15 years, uh, for two reasons. The first is that there is a very large population in India today that's actually got the willingness to pay for services much higher than what the government has been able to provide over the last 50 years. And the second is that we have one of the most vibrant stock markets in the world, capital markets. And the capital market system in India is actually looking at such opportunities to finance. So there's a very interesting link that's coming into play between the capital markets, urban reform, investments in capital assets and services. To date, over the last 17, 18 years, uh, we've implemented $10 billion of projects in India. And we're right now developing and implementing an additional $25 billion of projects across a variety of sectors. In 1996, uh, we took a decision at the level of the board of ILFS that we need to be environmentally and socially compliant. And what we meant by that actually was that uh, we felt projects that were environmentally and socially compliant would be more sustainable than those that were not environmentally socially compliant. And we built a whole uh, set of practices by which any project that we actually agree to develop or implement uh, has to go through in order to satisfy us that it's an investment that's going to work. To support our activities, we created something called the Project Development Fund. It's about a $100 million facility. It's available to anybody in India, actually anyone in Asia, who wants to develop projects which are commercially viable, bankable, and which can be implemented on uh, the PPP format. And the interesting thing is the first fund was deployed in less than 24 months. The second fund was raised in about 45 days and is being deployed in about 68 months. So the appetite for investing in infrastructure across the Asia region is going up quite massively. We also created a fund, uh, a very long-term fund by uh, Asian standards, a 13-year facility called the Pooled Municipal Debt Obligation Fund, which any municipality, any sponsor of a project in a municipality or in an urban local body could access, provided it was bankable, uh, it had certain features in it which made sense and was a PPP kind of structure. Again, this, this fund is moving extremely well and uh, we see this fund actually doubling or tripling its size over the next two to three years because of the sheer raw demand that is now being expressed in India across all urban local bodies. We began looking at telecom and power, and then we moved to roads. Today we look at almost every sector you can think of, and we have projects in every sector completed. Every single one of these projects have, or that have been completed are structured in, in a manner by which we recover our investment for user price. People pay for services. Our experience in India has been very clearly that there's a very high willingness to pay for services. There's a very poor 
willingness to charge for services. Government, for some reason, is reluctant to charge for services. Understandable at one end, but when you begin to see the kind of willingness to pay for services, you begin to wonder why the politicians and the bureaucrats don't figure out that if they deliver good services, they probably can actually uh, strengthen their vote plans more significantly. But our, but our real strategy is a very simple one. What we're doing is, in every sector, we bring four elements to the table which actually makes it work. And then, through that successful establishment of the policy, I'm going to show you, we link it to the capital markets in order to make sure that they have an ability to grow and invest and reinvest. The very first exercise that we conduct on any project is something called project development. It's a very rigorous preparation of the project. It includes uh, your standard uh, engineering studies, it includes public consultations, environmental studies, social studies, linking to community, all kinds of stuff. Everything that we need to know about the project, community, its impact, and how it can be structured. It results in a project being defined with such ultimate clarity that the government knows what it's buying into, the community knows what it's buying into, lenders and investors know what they're getting into. So the degree of clarity, contractual clarity, is extremely high at the end of this process. Having done that, and that's not just good enough, you also need to put in place institutional capability to actually implement what you've conceptualized. And therefore there's a whole effort that goes into creating the institutional structures by which you can actually implement these projects as designed. And then ensure that every stakeholder can see that the project is implemented in a manner conceptualized. Quality of money is very important. It's very easy to, um, I think the right American slang word is screw up. It's very easy to screw up a project by giving it the wrong kind of money. Infrastructure projects are typically very capital intensive. They need to be designed for very long terms. Our design life, for example, for all our projects, at a minimum, is 50 years. It takes five to seven years sometimes to get the approvals to implement the project. So you need very long term design life for projects in order to make them work. If you get money which is of very short term nature, money that needs to stay for three to five years or seven years, they simply won't make the project work. So you need structure projects where you can get very long term money to come into the project in order to make it work. And finally something called sponsorship. There's not been a single project that we've implemented that hasn't gone bankrupt in the first two years, despite our very best efforts at planning. Every single infrastructure project we've done so far has gone bankrupt. And we've had to make it work. Now, a typical sponsor would come in with the government, for example, and not care about making it work. Because they don't need to make it work. A pure private player will have to say, listen, I've lost my money, I'm out of this place. The PPP model is good in this kind of stuff. In this situation, the PPP actually works. Because the sponsor takes responsibility of making a project work. Projects I'm going to show you today, for example, each and every one of them have actually gone into bankruptcy and have to be pulled out of it. But it's a remarkable story that works. We use this formula over many projects across all these sectors I've listed out here. And in many of these sectors, we've actually taken these projects after they've gone through bankruptcy, being stabilized, to the capital markets. And each of these projects now actually has the potential to raise massive amounts of money to reinvest in their business. And that's the true success story of uh, infrastructure projects. I want to extend this argument into the urban scenario. I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, we have to find 
some method by which you can bring urban local bodies into the capital markets. Uh, capital markets provide accountability, they ensure financial rigor, they make sure that projects are sustainable by definition. And therefore, that link is a critical link to be established. When we move up the scale of investments globally, not just in India, the only real source of capital that can be found, which will stand the long test of time, would be the capital market. So I'm going to take you through three projects, and from that, call out some of the points for urbanization and how we can actually develop a, a sustainable strategy. The first one is a bridge which we built between Noida and Delhi. I don't know how many of you have been to India before, know the geography of India, but it's a, uh, Delhi is the capital of India. There's a river that runs uh, on one side of Delhi. On the other side is the state of Uttar Pradesh, and it's a, it's a river that already has about seven bridges. But Noida is a satellite town to Delhi, and with a huge potential for traffic to and fro from Delhi and Noida. So we decided to actually build this project. It's the first of its kind in the country way back in 1992. And the idea was to demonstrate uh, and to test whether or not it's possible to implement these kinds of projects in a country like India. The second is a water project. I followed the, the English water story very closely over many years. And everything that England has done, and the off track has done, um, right from the beginning, I felt were fundamentally wrong in terms of the way they dealt with communities and the, and the, and the issues of pricing and how they reinvest in their assets. This is a, this kind of learns from the English experience. It builds on the French experience, but it's, it's, it's very remarkably Indian in the sense that it, it finds a kind of rope trick by which it makes it work. It's right now in the process of going bankrupt. Uh, hopefully in the next three years we'll pick it into shape and make it profitable. It is very, very confident in doing that. And the third is what I think, in my view, is what I call the core of urbanization in India. Uh, we're creating, we're working with small and medium enterprises. Uh, and to date, we're working with about 3,500 enterprises across India in 25 clusters. And these clusters provide the infrastructure, the market links, the financing, and the input links, and technology links that these units require. They're all very small and medium enterprises, but who all have strong global potential. And the idea is to create these clusters, and around these clusters, address the urban requirements of the big town that is close to it. It's a very interesting concept. It's a very large program. It's moved remarkably fast over the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, and it's had a huge success in India already, and, and many more clusters are now coming to place. So, I want to end this presentation with um, how I see financing and clustering as a way forward. And I, uh, based on that, excuse the last 24 months, I'm now fairly convinced that a clustering approach is possibly the best way of taking the urban agenda forward. Okay, Noida Bridge. We conceptualized this project way back in 1991 or 1990, if I'm not mistaken. It took us two years to convince the government of Uttar Pradesh and the government of Delhi that they needed a bridge connecting Noida and Delhi. It's a $100 million project. And the total investment of government in this project is $2.5 million. $97.5 million was raised privately. That's a remarkable story of leverage. And I uh, have seen this pattern 
in almost all projects that we've done, whether it is um, a tribal bamboo project that we worked on in the northeast of India, whether it's the water project that I'm going to talk about, or the clusters, the leverage that government can actually bring to the table if they structure projects correctly is phenomenal. And therefore, my first proposition for this, for this evening is, the problem of sustainability is not money. The problem of sustainability is structure and implementation. And getting money is not difficult at all. This bridge was designed for 50 years. And it's a remarkable piece of engineering. Uh, you remove six wires from the underbelly of the bridge and put in six more new wires, and you get another 50 years. So it's a very remarkable design done for this project, and it, it works. Uh, Noida is on that side. Delhi is on this side. Uh, it's a very congested part of, uh, of, the, of the region. Huge amount of traffic. And in 1992, when we conceptualized this project, the big debate was whether there should be a four-lane, a six-lane, or an eight-lane project. And like I said, we were looking 50 years ahead. So we took a decision formally to go for an eight-lane facility. Governments don't often think that far. And in India you'll find, and especially the last 10 years, as the economy has opened up, the very large number of corporate houses are actually looking far ahead in terms of design life than any government department does. It's an eight-lane facility. It's, a, it's got one of the largest toll plazas in the world, 27-lane toll plaza. It's automated, state-of-the-art, and very fancy. I often say it's the best bridge I've ever seen in the world. But a difficult process. We signed an agreement in 1992. It took four years to convince the government to approve the alignment of the bridge. It took us a further one year to sign what's called the concession agreement, the formal agreement on which the government hands over to us the facility to actually implement it. It took us a year later to go through a bidding process to appoint the contractors and the operator. It took us about the same amount of time to acquire the land. It took us 12 months in 1998 to actually achieve what's called financial close, to raise the money. Money which I can draw down and actually pay and start using for the project. It took us less than two, months, two years to implement the project. We were, as per the concession, to implement the project in 32 months. We did it in 24 months. So it took us seven years to bring it to a stage where we could actually start digging and constructing the road on the bridge. It took us less than 24 months to complete it. And of course, when you build an eight-lane facility, you expect to see a huge amount of traffic. And when uh, we, I stood over the morning on which we inaugurated the project, that first month, we were at about 5% of what we had forecasted. We were looking at a financial disaster. It took us another two years to get the project fixed traffic to start moving up, and within three years thereafter, we have listed this company on the, on the Indian Stock Exchanges, and last year we listed this company on the London Stock Exchange, and it's doing remarkably well. It's fully automated. It has a 0% leakage factor on toll collections. The current traffic on the bridge is 80,000 vehicles per day, which is a huge number of vehicles that move up and down. We have Extreme, extremely high levels of consumer satisfaction in terms of the modes of payment. You can drive autom uh, through an automated gate, you can drive through a sort of pass, 
pass the master gate, you can pay cash, you, can have, you don't have to have the exact tender, you can do anything you want as long as you pay. There are very explicit service standards. The company that's implementing this project has agreed under the concession to maintain the standards of this asset for 30 years at this level. At the end of 30 years, when it recovers its investment, it will hand over this facility back to the government free of cost. We conduct periodic customer satisfaction surveys, use that to actually mobilize support and to design the marketing side of the project. Huge benefits to users. You can save time up to 40 minutes, depending on where you want to get to. You can save distance of up to 6 kilometers. High levels of safety and convenience. Superb guiding quality. And for both Noida and Delhi, a significant reduction in pollution. This is, a, this is the special purpose vehicle that is set up. It's a company. This is the company set up for the purposes of implementing the project. Into this company we pour equity and debt. And this company is done, awards a contract for a contract for a construction company to implement and an operator to actually operate the facilities. And this is really the manager, the program manager. I want to draw your attention to two points. The first is, if the government, any government in India, have been given the responsibility of implementing this project, they have messed up big time. This entity is professionally managed and has successfully done its job and has the capacity to really ramp up and do a lot more in the area. The second is, you'll notice that we have independent engineers and auditors. These are guys who make sure that every commitment that has been done has been agreed to contractually is actually being observed. And this is a quarterly report that goes into government and goes to lenders and to investors. So there's a very high level of oversight explicit oversight to ensure that the green standards are being kept to. Broad financing, uh, $30 million of equity and $70 million of debt. When we went for financial process project, that's roughly the time when the Indian government decided to burst the second atom bomb, or the hydrogen bomb. I forget now which kind of bomb it was. But basically the World Bank and uh, ADB and the multilaterals and every other country in the world had stopped lending to India, saying that you guys are bad boys. Uh, you shouldn't have burst a bomb, and now you suffer. We suffer, because all the financing that we tied up for this project dried up instantly, overnight. So we had to actually go and re-engineer the financial flows. The Indian market is extremely fragile from a point of view of equity. We cannot get very long-term equity in the Indian market, especially in those years. So we had to actually go international with private equity players. And we got 60% of the equity for this project from two equity funds in the U.S., that actually had faith in the story that we were selling and, and invested. The debt entirely came from India. But there are two other features of this, mark, of this, of this project that are very interesting. The first is that it's the first company in the country that actually took an infrastructure project to the capital markets. So we raised money directly from the people of India who invest in the capital markets. In order to make it work, in order to make any infrastructure project work, you've got to find financing that meets the cash flows of the project. As you will see in the next slide, the cash flows of any project actually begin very low and then they very gradually build up. Lenders don't care about that kind of cash flow pattern. They want to be paid interest on time and investors want dividend on time. 
So you've got to figure out a way by which you can actually marry the two uh, requirements. So we invented a couple of instruments. One is a deep discount bond, uh, which is a digital instrument, first starting in the world uh, for, uh, that I'm aware of. Which is a deep discount bond basically works as follows, that you invest your money today, and we compound the interest over a 15-year period, and give you a lump sum amount at the end of 15 years. So there's no cash outgo from the project company for the first 15 years. At the end of 15 years, it accumulates the interest payable to you with principal and gives it back to you. It's an attractive instrument for the company because it doesn't have any cash outgo in the initial period when it's stabilizing its operations. But from an investor's point of view, because you're waiting for 15 years to get your money back, you get a much higher yield. So it works for both parties. The second innovation that we had to bring in was uh, what's called the depreciation, the sinking fund method of depreciation. We argued with the government of India that these assets have very high levels of maintenance, and therefore the extent of depreciation per annum that you expect typically in any plant and machinery would not be applicable to this project. So we had an agreement with the government that we set aside a certain amount of project of the project finance, a certain amount of money against a depreciation uh, amount which would be chargeable to the company on a per annum basis. And by doing these two things, the DDD and the depreciation fund, we managed to actually kick the problem of early losses in the public company. As you can see the financials, first four years, complete disasters. I was close to losing my job twice in this period. But we survived. Today the company is doing extremely well and is in fact one of the more profitable companies in the group. What is the take-out of this case study? Actually, two things. The first is that because we're setting up a company which is professionally managed in the locality, the government or the local body has the professional competence today to actually take up more projects through this entity. So, rule number one in government and infrastructure and urban development is that if you build capabilities, don't disperse it. Governments typically look at each project very distinctively. So they want to build a road today, they build it out, they get a sponsor, and they build the road. But they never use the same capability for other projects in the catchment data. If you did that, then a company like this will grow, which makes a lot of sense from an investor's point of view. And from a government's point of view, it gets ready competence in its, uh, at its doorstep. And therefore, an argument that we have pitched to government, and thankfully we are buying the argument, is that use this company now to do more projects in Noida and Delhi. And in the process, this balance sheet is strong, it can raise money, it can leverage government resources, and it has the professional capability to develop and implement projects. And this is a key learning from our point of view, which carries forward to the next case study. Tirupur is a completely different kettle of fish. It's a water project. Water is an emotive subject. I'm sure it's emotive here, it's emotive in India also. Most people believe it's the government's obligation, because we pay taxes, to provide water. I have a slightly different point of view. I think water is an exceptionally scarce resource, and we have to pay for it. In fact, it's, I think, morally indefensible not to price water, because we are allowing for unnecessary and superfluous consumption at a level which can't be sustained. Having said that, we tried this on a project in Tirupur, and we chose Tirupur very carefully. It's a very interesting town. It's located in the south of India, in a state of Tamil Nadu, and it's in the cotton belt of, of that state. 
it, the, the town itself is about 27 square kilometers and a, a population of about 300,000 people. But the local planning area, the district under which this town exists, is about 220 square kilometers. We wanted to try and develop a strategy by which we provide water on a fully priced basis, but we integrate this project with the requirements of the area as a whole. And we felt we could do this in Tirupur because Tirupur is an extremely prosperous part of India. It's a prosperous part because they export a fair bit every year to the US and the European markets. And they're desperately short of infrastructure services. Over the last 15 years or 20 years, Tirupur has grown from a $500 million town to a 2 to $3 billion town. In the next five years, it will become a $6 billion town. All exports, largely to Europe and to America, and they've, and, they've, and they've diversified the product range from vests, inner garments for guys, to t-shirts, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They're competing with China extremely aggressively, and they're winning. So, Tirupur is a great example of how the economic dynamism of a town can be used productively uh, and constructively to actually uh, support a very wide range of infrastructure inter interventions which may not be possible otherwise. If you look at, despite its extraordinary economic uh, prosperity, if you look at its infrastructure service levels, they were absolutely pathetic. When you went into Tirupur, the average water supply was for two to three hours every two to three days. That's it. I asked a question of a local guy, what do you do for the other parts of the day? And he said, we buy tanker water. Now, tanker water loosely means that a bunch of guys take a tanker to a well close by, extract water, come back and sell it in buckets. Alright? There were no waste water collection systems. There was no sewage treatment facilities. There were desperately congested road network systems. Every single day, Tirupur fells 2,000 tons of trees to fire their boilers. They were eating up earth, like, I mean, unbelievable. You walked into a forest, the next morning it wasn't there. 2,000 tons of trees is a very large amount of forest that been felled with fuel boilers. There were acutely deficit in housing. There is no solid waste management. You know, it's, and it's a, it, it is a pathetic sight. They had inadequate power, both in terms of quantity and in quality. And they simply had no health facilities, educational facilities, cultural facilities, whatever, what, name whatever you want. So that we worked, we had to figure out a way of working with the community. And this is a program where we took it to the next level. NOIDA was a single bridge project. Here was an opportunity to look at it in terms of programs, in different kinds of projects, all to do with urban infrastructure, all to do with the support industry and, and, the, and the community. It was clear that we had to leverage on Tirupur's economic dynamism in order to be able to sustain this level of investment. And keep in mind, we don't work free. If we invest, we have to recover our investment. We also realized that unlike a single bridge project, when you want to do this kind of work, it's not good enough for you to come in from uh, Bombay and go into Tirupur and say, look, I can do all this for you. It had to be owned locally. It had to have a local ownership. So we had to change the way we looked at this project completely differently from Noida. 
In Noida, we own the project. You go to Delhi or Noida, they talk about ILFS. If you go to Tirupur, even today, the water is flowing, the streets are cleaned up. They don't tell you ILFS. They talk of the local organization that front-ended this entire effort. We had to master plan this. We had to prioritize this. Tirupur required everything. But couldn't afford everything. How do we bring this together? How do we prioritize it? How do we engage with communities? Which parts of the city should go to solve this management schemes? Which parts, sewage, and so on and so forth? We also realized that because of the rolling investment program, that our design parameters had to be literally defined for perpetuity. In other words, when the water, water guys asked me, what should I design this for? I, I looked at him and said, 100 years? 200 years? But that's the design life you need. Because this is a town that is going to grow. This is a town that is going to explore in the next 5-7 years. You also needed, because you are engaging the community so intimately, that you needed very transparent standard settings. And I'll give you a simple example of this. How often do you want your street cleaned? Once a day? Three times a day? Seven times a day? Set the standard. Because when you do it once a day, it's going to cost you a dollar. You do it three times a day, it's going to cost you two dollars. Community has to buy into the cost consciousness of that project. <coughs> When we went through a very extended consultative process, we did our own studies, and we came to a conclusion that the first phase of the project had to actually concentrate on water and water-related infrastructure. Tirupur industry didn't give a damn for sewage for the town. So our deal with the Tirupur industry was, we finance your water supply project, if you agree, we put in a sewage for the town. <coughs> they agreed to that proposal. We went to the town and said to them that we'll do a sewage facility for you guys, provided you regularize the slums and you put in place sanitation facilities. The town agreed. We went to the, uh, there's a parastatal in Tamil Nadu that handles all water projects within the municipal area. And we went to this guy and said to them that if I bring this wonderful new system of water supply into the town, and then I put it through a crappy distribution pipeline which had been put in 20 years ago and leaking, it's not going to work. So you guys have to agree to refurbish the system. And they said that, well, we'll refurbish the system provided you put, you fund it. To which we said, okay, if we're funding it, then we'll do it ourselves. So we agreed to put in a water supply system, a sewage system, local sanitation facilities, and to refurbish the entire town's distribution networks in order to ensure that water reaches consumers with the minimum leakages. Incidentally, for those who don't know this, in India, the average leakage of water systems is between 50 and 70 percent. So every million liters of water that we extract from our source, you lose 70 percent before it comes to the door of the house, which is intended to use this water. We went back to the municipality and said to them that we have wonderful water systems, we have great sewage systems, but we have a pile of shit around each corner. It doesn't work. So we agreed that they would go in through a massive EPP-based solid waste management system. If you're going to fell 2,000 tons of trees every day, I mean, when you die, you're going to be a to somebody. So we agreed with the industry 
for a massive social forestation program, which over the next 10 years will perhaps make Tirupu one of the greenest cities in the world. And we also agreed with the industry that we'd relocate some of the units which are located in the town, out of the town, to reduce traffic congestion, to reduce pollution, industrial effluent, and to bring it out of the city into a park. This re-engineering was done with the explicit concurrence of the municipality, of NGOs, of industry, of the government, and everybody in his mother. We have completed that phase, phase one, very successfully. Industry put some took huge leadership in this. They owned the program completely, and it's worked for them. Government owned this program completely. It's worked for them. We are the only guys, the only suckers now trying to make it work because it's still a financial disaster. We have to make it work. And we're going we're to figure it out, but it's going to take some time. But we've already begun phase two. Because the project outcome, as we see it, is independent of financial stability. Financial stability comes with ownership and use. Project outcomes come because you keep to the master plan and the design life. In phase two, we implement, we are in the process of implementing, I think we commissioned in July, the common effluent treatment plans for all industrial units. We have, uh, from, from, there's a migrant population that's come to work in Tirupur industry, largely women from across India, and they do not have appropriate hostels or, or quarters to sleep. So we're creating a very nicely designed complex uh, with a lot of uh, right facilities, a, a working women's hostel. We're improving the road network. We're putting in a design, an R&D center for the textile industry. We're making them more energy efficient. We're bringing in cogeneration facilities that actually uh, reduce their energy consumption by 30 to 40 percent. They got to play golf, so they're playing a golf course. They've got water now, so they can put a golf course. We have a trade show. They have six trade shows a year now, conferencing facilities, vocational trading institutes. Uh, the migrant population that works in Tirupur today has gone up from something like two to three lakh, uh, two to two to three hundred thousand people to seven hundred thousand people. They need huge labor, skilled labor, to work in their plants. It's a huge opportunity for employment. Again, for those who don't know this fact, India's labor market is about 300 million people. The formal organized workforce of India is 30 million people. 90% of India's population, work population, have to find their own jobs. They desperately require vocational training institutes that meet this challenge. Places like Tirupur are gold mines to absorb people who otherwise will not find jobs. And we also put up the first uh, South Indian cultural center. It's a, it's a very rich cultural center uh, and, 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 and a lot of different kinds of cultural and art programs that take place there. So we set that up also in phase two of the project. Public sponsorship here became critical. Like I said at the beginning, if we had taken ownership as ILFS of this program, it would have definitely failed, irrespective of the great outcomes the program had. This was to be owned by the local population fully and truly. And this is exactly what's happened. And they've taken leadership, they've made sure that the program works, and they've actually secured the outcomes that they wish to have from this program. Again, a similar structure, a company was set up, to actually implement the project, it awarded the contracts, it brought in the, the, uh, the uh, monies, both lenders and equity, 
and entered into agreements with all the users. Explicit user charges. Every industry unit knows precisely how much they have to pay per milliliters of water for the next 30 years. Every household knows how much they have to pay for the next 30 years. It's a 30-year contract. It's not a one-year contract. And there's an agreement with the users that when we hit a target of return on our investment, all surpluses will be put back in the community. Explicitly monitored by a whole bunch of independent engineers and um, uh, 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 engineers and auditors. The framework for implementation, therefore, is very clear. This project is unlike the ones that we did previously. It had a whole oversight mechanism put in place to ensure that we could keep to our charter in a transparent fashion and, and build community trust in terms of this company's operations. The, the phase one of this program cost about $250 million. AT equity, we introduced a new concept called subordinate debt of over $20 million and the balance $150 million. But the key in this project was long-term debt. In the Indian market, around the time we raised money for this project, the maximum tenor of debt we got was about 10 to 12 years. We needed 30-year money to make this project work. There was no 30-year money in India. So we actually convinced the government of the U.S. to issue a guarantee to ILFS. And ILFS would then issue a bond in the U.S. market, guaranteed by the government of the U.S., which made a AAA borrow, to raise money in the U.S., convert it into rupees, and give it to the project company in rupees for 30 years. With that 30-year money, this project became extremely viable. Now I want to show you why. If I had gone with the 10-year money that I was, I was getting in India, the price of water would have been 65 rupees per thousand liters. At the time that we were building this project, water price in Tirupur was around 45 rupees. So by definition, I had to have a design life of 30 years and a finance life of 30 years to amortize my project cost and recover it. If, however, I had had 50-year money, or better still, under the money, and if I could have issued in publicity bonds, I could have achieved this entire program of urban renewal of Tirupur at a price of water of not more than 10 rupees per thousand liters, which is 25% of what they were paying in 1999. So the question is not about financing. The question is not about the minister pay for services. The question really is, an implementation framework and a structure for implementation supporting the financing, which takes us as far out as possible to make these projects work. Can you imagine? We could have reinvented a whole town at 25% of the price that they were paying 10 years ago. So, we looked at Noida, we looked at Tirupur. I'm an optimist. And I, uh, for me, urbanization is a huge problem, but therein lies a huge opportunity. And it's really a question of how we actually approach this problem and how we want to actually tackle it. There's a very remarkable things happening in this world. For the first time this year, we'll have more people living in urban areas than rural areas. 
Much of this growth in urban population will be in Asia. Much of that population growth will happen in India. So this singular problem the globe faces is India becoming rich and India becoming urban. An Indian who's rich and who's urban is like a piranha fish in consumption terms. Alright? He can eat a lot. She can eat even more. Now the question really is how do we tame this beast? How do we actually deal with this problem or this opportunity? And there are no easy answers. There are tough trade-offs. But one thing is very clear. I've heard arguments on sustainability and I've heard arguments on resources and earth and forestry and green covers. And I promise you this. That when China and India become fully developed in the next 15-20 years, the world will have no option but to manage its environment very differently and to find different solutions. Because both these economies are exceptionally large, exceptionally hungry, and incredibly focused on consumption. Every single year, we're going to be adding, in Asia alone, 44 million people to urban areas. It translates into a huge wish list of what we need as infrastructure on a daily basis to support this kind of migration. You can't stop it. It's happening. India's population will grow to about 1.7 billion people by 2050. More than a billion people are going to be living in urban areas, traditionally. It is, if you add America, Europe and China, put them all together, you're still a fraction of what India's urban population will look like compared to their urban population. I'm including China in this. Over 50% of India's population is less than 25 years of age. Today. That is your depth of urban population. That's where the consumers are going to come from. Do what you want. You can't stop the aspiration of a population to have a better quality of life. 1955, cities across the world, which had million, 5 million above populations. 2015, cities around the world, which are going to have more than 5 million people living in them. And as you can see, the circles completely block out India. That is the reality of urbanization that we are facing. This is not the time for niceties. This is the time for very drastic actions. Actions like Tirupur, actions like Noida. People have to pay for services. Otherwise, you simply cannot provide the level of service that they demand. It is not an option that you have. There's another big driver that's running through this whole theme. Urban incomes are six times more than rural incomes in India. You cannot tell somebody to live in rural India because you know an urbanization will happen. You cannot. It's morally indefensible. And India is a democracy. It's impossible to stop people from coming from rural areas to urban areas. So this propulsion of migrant populations is going to accelerate. And what I've just explained to you is perhaps the, uh, shall I say, the pessimist forecast of what's going to eventually happen and not the optimists. To provide for this level of populations in urban areas is going to be prohibitively expensive. 
prohibit the dispensers. And I make a case that this is not an India problem, this is actually a global problem. If India becomes this urban, it is going to suck every possible resource that we have in terms of natural resources across the world. So it's a global problem. It is not an India problem. India can make it this own problem, which it will, but it's really a global problem. So we need to find solutions which actually deal with this directly. Even if we have the money, even if we have the money, the sheer scale of infrastructure built that we need to put in place over the next 5, 15, 20 years is simply staggering. It's never been seen before. If all the construction companies and all the public developers and all the governments and everybody in the world came to India, we still have problems putting this together in the timelines we're looking at. So we have a real problem. How do we fix this? And we have a third dimension that we need to deal with. Unlike London, unlike New Mexico, unlike Dhaka, Bombay at 18.2 million today accounts for less than 5.6% of India's population, urban population. Our cities can't become so big that they'll accommodate this massive migration of population from rural areas to urban areas. It just is not feasible. Cultures of a town change when new populations come in. It happens when populations from developing world comes to developed world. It happens from rural to India to urban India. It's a fact across the world. But it's much more stark here because the haves and the have-nots, the disparities become much more stark. I don't know how many of you have been to Bombay, but you can have a house which is uh, square feet with all the flushes that you can think of and more, walk out and you see a sea of slums. And you begin to wonder, when will the have-nots begin to ask a simple question? Why not me? And when that happens, what answer can any civil society give? Brute force, police force, enforcement of law is not an answer. Will not be an answer. I don't know how many of you have been following a particular episode that's taken place in West Bengal in India. And that's really been hard not to have uh, uh, fight. When it boils into the urban areas, it will become uncontrollable. Because in urban areas, slums and organized housing merge. We don't have gated communities like we have in other parts of the world. We don't have that in India. Not in Bombay at least. So you need new models of planning. I don't have answers. I have some thoughts. But I do know this. That there are very few cities in the world that have actually been able to crack from the traffic, congestion, pollution, overcrowding, unplanned and unproductive growth. So very few times. So... The answer has to be somewhere else. We're calling it engineered urbanization. We need to spread this out. We have no choice. Because urban areas are going to be denser in population terms, by spreading out urbanization, we're going to actually create islands across a much wider fabric of country, which will enable rural India forests to preserve itself more effectively. You need to provide very high transportation, high levels of transportation services, if you want to control and make these urban nodes productive. And therefore the core, to my mind, in clicking the problem of urbanization, 
is mass transportation. And the solutions that we have come up so far with, in my view, are simply not uh, adequate to deal with this issue, both in design terms or in planning terms or in operational terms. We need to figure this out more cleverly. I'm going to give you a flavor of how we're looking at this issue for India as an organization and what we've done to try and make and to deal with this issue very briefly. It's called the Trusted Development Initiative. Like I said, small and medium enterprises are the heart of the Indian economy. 80% of enterprise is in the medium and small industry. I think it's medium, small scale and micro enterprises. If you look at textiles industry as a case in point, they're today at about $38 billion of exports and domestic demand. I think the blue is not mistaken exports, the red is domestic demand. In, in another 10 years, it's going to go up to $85 billion. $85 billion will be the total industry uh, size in the next five years. This industry has the potential of, of employing close to 50 million people in the next five to six years. This industry is going to drive urbanization in India. So to fix urbanization, somehow, we need to fix the textile industry. The second industry that we're looking at is agro and food processing. It's coming to India in a big way, and it's going to move from a 164 billion US dollar market to something like 300 billion dollars market. This is a second industry that's going to drive urbanization in India. And if I just lick these two as concepts, I think we've got a sense of how we can deal with this problem. What we're doing is we're clustering these units. We're going to each and every town. We're today working in 25 different towns across India. We have a whole bunch of social capacity builder kind of chaps who go across there, sit with these micro-enterprises and tell them the benefits of clustering. Coming together in a discrete park, a cluster, to work as production units to scale but individually coming into the park. It's a complex concept. It takes time to build. But over the last 24 months, we have worked with something like four to 5,000 micro-enterprises and we're relocating them from the existing urban node to a different area around the existing city, providing them all the infrastructure they require, all the linkages they require, at a price which is more competitive than where they are today, so that they can be globally competitive, but essentially making urban nodes spread, providing high connectivity between the two nodes in order to create this kind of dispersal system. Some of the towns that we are working with, which cut across India and across different sectors, this is the, the red points are the, the urban nodes that they're creating across India in order to make this urban phenomena manageable. The second uh, uh, initiative that we have begun is a more difficult one, but a more interesting one for that reason. These are towns where there is economic dynamism. What about the vast parts of India which don't have the same level of dynamism, but have people living there who are organizing at a much more inefficient level. We're creating clusters of clusters. This is actually a cluster of clusters which we're actually working on right now as I speak in a place called Sikandra in Rajasthan. It's in the northwest of India. It's a desert state. 
and but has great artisans and great culture of production and fabrics and footwear. It also has some dramatic tourist sites. So we're creating a whole bunch of clusters. Again, with the purpose of creating an urban platform which supports enterprise to be competitive and allows people to live an urbanized life in a much more managed, engineered fashion with high levels of connectivity. This is an area where the per capita income would be very, very low because artisans typically get paid very little. So we have to engineer this very differently. But this is moving extremely well and the concept has been brought into by the government of India. It's been brought in by the state government of Rajasthan. All the clusters that are marked here have actually bought into this concept and they're pretty excited about what's happening. So let me conclude. Urbanization is a reality that's come. We have to deal with it frontally. India is leading the charge in urbanization. It's a scale problem which is frightening in terms of the sheer resources is going to preempt across the world. But unless we deal with it today, we face serious consequences. Thank you very much. Meeting Financial Services Limited, which you've seen well advertised already, certain things that work. The other thing I'm supposed to tell you is that um, this event will be recorded and made available online for public consumption as a podcast at, uh, on the MSE website, so uh, you'll be able to enjoy it all again. Um, now, would anybody like to press? Questions, comments, thoughts, usual thing. If you could say broadly who you are and um, from where, if you could. If you stand up and shout, so there's a microphone. Good. Hi, I'm Rick, I'm Stars. I'm Can we hear that in the back? You know that the work did it. Uh, in Delhi Rider, we actually uh, selected a, a bunch of senior uh, representatives who had, uh, I think, a pretty high standing in the local community uh, to represent the community in the community. Every month, the project company and the mandate of the company actually uh, met and discussed issues the community had on the project to the construction and selections they had to make it easier to be implemented during that phase. In Tirupur, it's actually it's gone into the operation space. It meets every month uh, to discuss service standards, to, to, to give inputs on how to improve services, where to be more efficient, uh, method to extend the service, and those kinds of stuff. Question there, and then one here. I mean, just before we move on, I mean, I, I guess the question that was, I certainly, from what you were saying, Mary, the question, certainly a question that came up in my mind was, can you are as a, a large private corporation or a, a, a big international company, 
delivering public sector infrastructure and by the sounds of it doing good that governments themselves are not necessarily able to deliver as quickly as put it kindly that way. And governments have a good or real legitimacy which private companies generally do not. Uh, and in that sense, how do you ensure that you have that degree of legitimacy in operation, even if doing good, given that local community interests will be undoubtedly always are impacted by major infrastructure projects. If you remember the slide on the contractor structure, there's something called concession agreement. That concession agreement provides the legitimacy to this public company. And for the practice, from, from the community's point of view, this company, for this asset, is the government. So, manner speaking, the concession provides those rights which would be typically enjoyed by government in discharging these kinds of services to the community. To this company, to discharge. And this company, in turn, then gets into a contractual into, into an institutional agency by which it interacts with the community to ensure that this service is provided in a manner acceptable to the community. And who gets involved if you don't, or makes the judgment the government? The government does. They, they get their own regulator. Okay. Alright, enough from me. Now there's a chat there, and then first of all, one there. Yeah. Can you? Oh, there's the one over here. Right. You've got them. I'm Eli Rosenbaum. I'm uh, here in the Urban Age Conference or Workshop on Mumbai. Uh, I had a two-part question. First is I saw on your slide uh, about the bridge project that uh, South Africa and Japan were involved. I was wondering if you could elaborate on the nature of that. And also, when you consult with governments, are you consulting with the locally elected officials or with state appointees? Okay, now, possibly. Um, we have to deal with all parts of the bureaucracy and the political ends. We can avoid as much as possible the political end of it. But we have to. That's an issue of the As far as Japan and South Africa are concerned, uh, we went through a building procedure for selecting a consortium to construct the bridge. And the Japanese consortium, Marubini and Mitsui, won that contract. And we awarded the contract to them. In hindsight, of course, it was a big mistake because all they did was to appoint Indian subcontractors to do the job. So we ended up taking a march to these jokers to see if they easily avoid it. Very easily avoid it. As far as South Africa is concerned, um, they came to a bid process for the toll management part. Um, and uh, they set up the system very efficiently, in a very fine job. And uh, they continued. Captain? Oh, here, here. You wave your hand. You've got the next, and then you're next. Hi, I'm Chris Tata, so at UCL and My question is basically as follows. Uh, in your presentation, I noticed that uh, both you and the National Commission of uh, Informal uh, Enterprise both are mentioning the PURA concept as one for that's, that's going to basically be the growth, uh, the growth engine for the informal sector as well. Now, given that we are a large bank, and as you said that we deal with, in your initial slide, we deal with small medium enterprises, which is then loan and technical assistance. If you know both core concepts, how do you, uh, giving the same 
lot of assistance in, in the in terms of technical as well as finance to artisans who you know usually not have the capacity to pay or deal with you at a digital level. Uh, I didn't intend it to come across as this is an atomistic. It came across as incorrect. Uh, we're actually working with a very large number of organizations. Uh, we work with microfinance organizations. We're working with NGOs, working government. We're working with large construction companies, operators, etc. We also bring in a lot of technical advice. For instance, uh, in one of the, I think if I'm not mistaken, the carpet cluster in Sikandar, uh, we've actually brought in some Afghan carpet dealers uh, to work with the Sikandar carpet clusters, the panel of synergies in between communities, uh, to jointly explore the possibility of working through a partnership and addressing a global opportunity. Uh, so, we are actually facilitating a lot of these small interactions uh, to make these things happen. But our focus is really uh, that having initiated that dialogue, we must very quickly be in a position to withdraw from that dialogue because it should sustain itself. And that's where we will be a focus on. So we may we will extend our help, we will we will support the initiative, but we will look for every single opportunity to exit from a project. Uh, because if that's the only test of sustainability that we can put on ourselves. So uh, even in this carpet cost of Zamasikanda, over a three month period, we we finance those guys coming here, some guys from here going there. But in three months' time, we made sure that we were out of the picture, that we had up enough stands in the between the two clusters to make work together. So it's, it's, really a, it's, it's really a very large rainbow coalition that has to come together. And it has come together in good faith, uh, despite uh, obvious suspicions and mistrusts that people have between these different stakeholders. Very, very sophisticated forecasting techniques to assess demand and getting us to pay and all kinds of stuff. But the bottom line is that uh, at the end of the day, these are real projects. These are not something that you consult on. I mean, you're putting money on the table and saying, let's see how it works. Uh, you don't want to be in this business if you can't handle bankruptcy. And you don't want to be in this business if you don't have credibility with lenders. So go back to them, look them in their face, and say to them, we screwed up. It's going to take us three more years to get this right. Support us. Um, 
we, despite having gone bankrupt over the last, I mean, when I use the word bankrupt, I don't mean uh, erosion net worth to negative. What I mean really is a forecasted inability to service debt. Right? So I'm using my word rather than using a bankrupt. So I go in advance to bankers and say to them, listen, this is what we forecast. This is what's actually happening. This is why it's happening. This is what we will be doing in the next few years to fix this problem. Bear with us. And so far, that's what it's worked. I suspect that because we've been work at least twice so far, that our credibility with the banking consortium in India and overseas is high enough to put off the stick once more. But the day that we don't pay up, the day that we actually screw up so badly that we, we default and we are unable to service obligations, that's the day when this will be stopped. And like you saw, because banks are not the business of good wishes, they are paying their money back. So it's a question of being practical about how you handle the problem, but also realizing that, listen, uh, you can never forecast the future. So when, in fact, so when you say the project goes bankrupt, it doesn't really go bankrupt. What you manage to do is to convince your lenders, or those the equity holders, to forego a payment or payments for a while, while the project becomes profitable. And then, so it is a version of rolling up for 15 years, it's just, uh, and as you say, that would uh, work until it didn't work. Is that the way you're saying? It didn't work, it didn't work badly. Okay, fair enough. Now, on the... Come back to the other of course. Alright. <laughs> Where else? One there, one here, then the third one there. You're on. I'm a little far and uh, I think the cost is wrong by the way, which I've blocked by the financial issue in 2019. Uh, to what extent do you find some of your projects are ones which are really done by a properly functioning public sector, mobilizing tax rate finance and government dollars, because these levels of this short term cash flow problems get projects going, and really the only people who can really undertake these projects properly? We get the full optimality of social capital return. It's a properly functioning public sector. But I had to be too distracted by doing too much to excuse up this natural uh, borrowing potential. It doesn't have a ratio of government spending to GDP that means that their complex paradigm affects in your private economy as well. And that although governments like the United Kingdom have been forced to turn to these things, as a sensible, I would argue, the third best option. In a better functioning public sector is more realistic. Perhaps more these projects will be funded through the taxpayer and through a long term government borrowing. That's a long debate. <laughs> but but um, if I were to try and answer it as honestly as I can, um, I'm actually an ex student of NSE. I came with early 80s and I, I, I so which, which took the first patch of last that is economy book. And, and I remember my first reaction when I heard Thatcher's formula for this economy as being completely outrageous in terms of abdicating government responsibility to finance and so on. And I went back to India and I saw the inefficiencies of government systems and the sheer inability uh, of a government system to respond to real needs of a population. Uh, it got me thinking a very different track. And that's how this whole issue of public health partnership came into our system. 
I, 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 I'm not really because of ownership. I'm really because of the efficiency of service. So I don't really care who owns the service or who owns the asset. It could be well owned by the government, it could be owned by the private sector. It really doesn't matter. What really matters is how we are able to accountably enforce a service standard. And by that I mean including the pricing fund. And I'm not so sure that the rigor of debate that takes place in the, in the, the government sector on these aspects uh, is more transparent than what takes place in a PPP format or where the capital markets are involved. I think capital markets and legal frameworks are much harder on service providers than the government level be on its service provider. And uh, so maybe one form of answer could be that you have a two-horse race. You create off-financial SPVs of this type along with government service providers and let them compete. So you would define a, a service provider as a PPP or a private, vis-a-vis -vis that of government, or have two government service providers. But have competition. Have competition and have the discipline of the market. If you cannot have the discipline of the market, and I mean by this accountable service providers, uh, it's very easy to fall into the trap of underinvesting, underproviding, underachieving services. But there are really no clear answers on the next <coughs> Okay, very good. Now there was one that was going to project. And the first two thirds we focus on financing, actually debt financing paid by users. But in the last third we didn't talk about financing. And how do you imagine the, the clusters, the building of the clusters the organization to make pay for and finance them? Uh, the first cluster uh, are all industry based. The growth pole cluster uh, will have a long period of gestation where it will not be industry based. And as it gets to a certain level, the economic values and affordability, it will then move to user pay. User pay I'm convinced, I'm really convinced, uh, after seeing the work we've done in India, that everybody has to pay a user fee. You want to give somebody money because he can't afford to pay for that service, please give him money, give him cash. But when he gets onto the toll road, he pays the toll fee. When he buys power, he pays for power. You give him cash so that he can afford to pay for the service. That's the state decision that you work out for yourself. But you must pay for the service. Otherwise, it's almost impossible to enforce accountability in service standards. That you're using the same amount of projects that you are in the. Debt and equity, both. Plus, we use some government grants. Yeah, right, right, right. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. 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 Uh, 
I don't see classes as uh, exclusive of existing social improvements. We're doing the beautiful kind of projects, we're doing modern kind of projects, and we're doing classes. We're doing both. We need to do both. Again, if that point comes out of that question, but implies heavily, I mean, I think it's fair to say um, you're a little critical of the public sector's capacity to deliver major projects. And I think a lot of people in the world, regardless of their politics, might, after experience, share that view. However, you also described an extraordinary projected growth in India, and it's very difficult to see any institution apart from government at various levels managing what, to my eyes, looks like um, you know, little Britain, poor, tiny Britain in the 19th century, but times a hundred. I mean, a scale of industrialization and change that people in Europe can barely imagine going on very rapidly. And that sounds to me like something that needs good government. And yet the implication of a lot of what you say is that government isn't up to it. And should we be worried by that thought? I don't, I don't, uh, I don't intend to give an impression that I don't think government works. In fact, I think it's critical that government partners this process. How would you more positively, how would you improve government? How would you advise government to improve in managing this huge issue? In my project's go home. Go home. Yes, the truth is that these are public-private partnerships. Okay, so there is a very clear role for government. And that is to ensure that we do our job. And that is absolutely uh, invaluable. I mean, that's, that's really the role of government has to exercise. Having said that, all I'm saying is that in the 1980s, if you want to build a road in India, you have to really search far and wide, beyond maybe two to three companies in the private sector that had the capacity to implement large road projects. If you wanted to build a road in the 1980s, you would typically require the road government and the government department that had that to implement the road project. In 2007, there are over 400 construction companies that are capable of implementing road projects in India. Indian road companies, companies capable of building large road projects. We ourselves are building a 1,050 kilometer road network in Rajasthan in 22 months, entirely private. So you have to recognize that the private sector in India has come of age. They're very competitive, they're exceptionally blessed, and they've really got to the point of technology and management which lets them handle very large roads. This is an asset. This is an asset. You've got to use this asset along with, with the partners. So the partnership is really to ensure that the government and private sector work together. Not exclusively of each other, but together to make these programs come together. Uh, actually happen. Now, 
The scale of programming the government means that India has to spend something like, uh, India calculation about a couple of months ago, but if I, if my memory serves me right, we have to spend close to 300 million dollars a day to meet the requirements of India alone. Now, there is no capacity beyond the private sector and government together to do this. We need to work together. So I don't see an exclusive. What I, I, what I do see is that because private sector is not accountable, they are, they are being, they are being forced to comply with norms which most government departments don't have to comply. Because they are not so accountable. So if they build a road which washes away the next monsoon, nobody blames them. If I build a road which got washed off the next monsoon, I lose my concession. But the implication again is that the private sector is actually, and I'm not, it's not a critical point, but I'm just trying to check I've understood it, that the private sector is going to deliver a better or sustainable world in India and more efficiently and better than the government would. So, no, where have I missed I've missed a step in that argument. It's a partnership. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's a partnership where you think that the private sector is definitely leading governments in terms of standards. No. Right? The government is setting the standards. The partnership ensures that the most efficient tool to achieve those standards is used for that purpose. But the ownership is government. It's the government that gives the concession off. It's the government that sets out what standards we should achieve. It's the government that appoints the different regulator to ensure that the regulation that is actually is compliant. The private sector is one very impressive tool available to government. Just as it has a division or a department to do a job. It's the same concept. In my mind, as I said, in my mind, the government department and the private sector under concession are in. Okay, enough for me. Well, over around five minutes, because we started at five and six Private banks are doing what they're doing in India, uh, uh, but the advantage to one is that because we have government ownership, uh, we're able to go to government and talk to them on a bilateral basis. Uh, a purely private bank would not be able to have that opportunity. That's, that's the real difference. But in terms of actual work, there's no difference.
toll act in India is very clear. If you want to toll a road, you must provide alternative toll free access to people who can't pay toll. They don't want to pay toll. So, uh, if they don't want to pay toll, they have another access road which they can take and, uh, and not pay toll. So, you don't have to exclude somebody from paying toll on the common market. Uh, environmental social, as I said, we have a process which uh, is independent of the audit and all our projects are expected to go through that process. If there are deviations, those deviations are highlighted and better actions are taken thereafter. But, you see, this is a very, very complex sector and there are very complex decisions that need to be taken and I'm not so sure that many of us are equipped to take those decisions. I'll give you a simple example. There is a, uh, there is a, um, the uh, uh, cricket. Huh? Uh, it's, it's a small insect uh, which habitates, uh, which hab whose habitat was going to be completely destroyed by an eight-lane facility, not the bridge, but some other project. It's going to be completely destroyed by this eight-lane project. Now the judgment that they are being asked to take and make a call on is whether that is okay to have this insect disappear. From this region. What are you supposed to take as a court? What information can you possibly take by which you come to the decision of extension? I don't know. But the, then, you know, you go to the economist, and I'm a philosopher also part of LSE, so I can tell you this with some authority. Uh, you, you do a your social cost of analysis and you come up with an evaluative answer. Bottom line is, when you build the ATM facility, that insect is going to be extinct. So, do you do the project or don't do the project? <coughs> and I'm not going through the human outcomes of this process, you know, that you're going to have access to a population that never had access before, all that kind of stuff. A simple point. Now, people like us, in the kind of decision making process that we have to take, have to live with the decisions. And I do not have the instruments or the experience or the ability to take a decision of this nature in, a, in, in what I call a rational way. I just have no basis. You can ask every single mattress in the world, and they all supported the decision to build this project. But the bottom line was that this insect, this insect is currently extinct from that region. It's a cause of mistake. Development is a very, very hard implementation paradigm. Exceptionally hard. And you want to take decisions of this nature. It's very difficult to come to a conclusion. Am I right or am I wrong? I have no clue. I really have no clue. Now, one final. I have just uh, two further questions. Uh, first one being that you said that uh, if you have full road, you have to provide road get access to people who are paid road. Now, in that infrastructure also be subject to the same standard, level standard that the toll road will be, system, will be uh, subject to. And will it also be accountable to wash it away after one month? That's one question. And that's a lot of answers. And the second question is that uh, you mentioned that uh, this is a public-private partnership. Now, I suppose that you know, for any partnership to work successfully, you have to have both partners pulling their weight. 
Now, even the fact that in most million persons only in urban India and major cities, who are all over India. So, what is your view? I mean, how do you need to strengthen local government? But given that, you know, the Seventy Fourth and Seventy Third Amendment, most places are Well, it's the India Grand Act. It's the third level of government. These are locally elected officials and representatives of people. And uh, their, their capacity to execute their jobs has to be enhanced. Uh, the government of India has put a lot of resources in the training programs and they're bringing a whole bunch of counselors out to England and America and to France and to Japan to interact with counterparts in these countries to get a sense of what, what happens here and how it happens. But it's a, it's a process. These are, these, are, these are development processes and it's going to take time. Um, I don't see governance in India improving um, overnight. It takes time. But we still have the issue of corruption. It's a major issue. Um, and we have a deal with it. We have the issue of uh, people of government taking a decision on one day and then changing their mind and going and doing something different tomorrow because of some political corruption. But that's the reality of the, of the game. I mean, if you don't want to play this game, don't be in this game. And, and the bottom line is that uh, the last sector in the land of speaking to improve is government. Because they're so insulated from this economy. In terms of accountability, again, I come back to the same point. So, but it, it's bound to happen because if you notice in India, for example, uh, we have today counterparts in government who are exceptionally supportive and take good decisions and are very supportive and are very professional in what they're doing. We also have government officials who are completely bizarre in their behavior and you don't understand what their intentions in life are. But that's the nature of the game. We also have bad private sector guys. You said that for everything you have, you know, you have certain benchmarks, you have certain indicators. But then, you know, how do you... That's what standards of service. Yes, of course. But then, you know, how do you... Make sure that you, know, you, you have any indicators you know, that uh, measure non-quantifiable things like you know, inclusion and whether, say, you know, in that you know, India, we have a consolidated process. All sectors, all, you know, all sections of society have actually changed, you know, to spoken to in a, in a substantive manner rather than just a procedural manner. I mean, how do you make sure that, as you said, that would depend mostly on the government? But if the government is the last one to improve, then how do you make sure that, you know, you are developing what you claim to be developing. See, that's something for independent evaluators. That, that was the one. That was fairly standard. And then, then at the stop, I think, that's uh, one to take up, I think, come down and have, have the argument here. <laughs> uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Warren, but I'm to, uh, we need to uh, draw this to a close. I said we've run two or three minutes late to start at uh, five. And I think I need to draw this to a close. I think what I've learned tonight uh, from a fascinating talk and also from the questioning is the um, clearly the strength and importance of uh, institutions that stand in this fascinating and growing space between the public and the private sector in many, many countries. Some of them parastatal, some of them not, but uh, in a very interesting position because.
because of their need for accountability and the possibility that in some, some occasions they're better at accountability than governments, but on other occasions a suspicion amongst activists and others and theoreticians that they're not. Um, but clearly these institutions are hugely important to India's future. Um, and I think we just heard from the discussion at the end uh, clear need for good and powerful government at different levels. It's certainly something that is felt very strongly here in Britain, uh, where, and I think want to push this into the debate, but the, the question of how good the public sector is in Britain at contracting with large private companies is enormously important, because there's lots of evidence in Britain, public sector hopeless at contracting with large private companies. Um, with all the expertise lies in the private sector, literally with the public sector. But I, I, I can bash Britain rather than I'm not saying the same thing. Rude about India. The uh, scale of India's growth, I think, is a matter of not only national, or clearly national, but global concern and interest. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy to say that, uh, as I said at the very beginning, the urban age, funded by the House Foundation, will be rolling on to India, uh, where he hopes it will learn from India, and I hope to some extent uh, in all directions from the other cities it's already visited. Um, the issues we've discussed tonight are going to be touched upon again, I suspect, tomorrow night in this very room, where Gerald Shrew, who's sitting here, is actually going to be speaking on the rule of, uh, is the rule of law good for cities? And I see we have already at some level started that discussion tonight. Anyway, I'd just like to thank Harry for his excellent presentation and also for engaging so animatedly with all the questions. So, thank you. And thank you.